I'm Kate Daniels. Education and information. We need it to navigate our work today. And we have a special first guest, Professor Michael LeMay, Professor Emeritus at California State University and an author of more than two dozen academic titles. His latest, U.S. Immigration Policy, Ethnicity, and Religion in American History, you just know this is critically important in our lives these days. Michael LeMay has a gift in relating this history, both on the printed page and in speaking. So here we are, ready to learn from the professor. Michael LeMay, good morning, and so many thanks for being with us this morning. My pleasure, Kate. Uh, I'm, I'm happy you were having me on. I feel that it's so important to have you with us this morning with all of the work and dedication you have invested in immigration history and policy and just so much is involved, uh, which we're going to reference. And I think, you know, we'll only be touching on little bits of it. And listeners can certainly be looking to this book, U.S. Immigration Policy, Ethnicity and Religion in American History, because you just really do a magnificent work of recapping it. And I think we uh, really get a good sense of it. I'm sure that you feel that way. Well, thank you. Yes, it's been a a career-long interest of mine, and uh, I find that when I was teaching, for instance, whenever I got into, in the various courses, whenever we got into the immigration-related area, the interest of students just noticeably picked up, you know, because there's so often uh, family connections with almost everybody to to immigration. So there's a lot of human interest in it. And we should start with the fact that you yourself uh, have that very directly. You're essentially second generation, I guess, right? Right, yes. My my grandmother and grandfather on my father's side were French-Canadian, and my grandfather and grandmother on my mother's side were German. And I took care of my grandmother uh, when she was... uh, in her late 80s, uh, she suddenly went blind, and she had been living with my parents and I for about 10 years. So my parents uh, actually hired me, if you will. Uh, I usually had worked outside the home, and they said, well, this this year or this summer it turned out to be a full summer, but uh, we want you to just stay and take care of Grandma, and we'll pay you the money you would have gotten if you had been working outside the home. And I consider it a great privilege, uh, really. But that certainly piqued my interest in immigration. Uh, She talked a lot about her experiences uh, coming over. She was about 18 or 19, came single person at at the time. And it just impressed me so much that somebody would have that kind of courage and and gumption to pick up and leave their, their country of origin and come to a country where they spoke a different language and you know, had a different economic system, et cetera. But, uh, so anyway, I've, I've been very uh, interested in immigration since then. And a note about that, as you were caring for your grandmother, and obviously you were listening to her stories, sometimes I think at a young age we can be really arrogant about that, and we find it, we might call it boring, or, you know, come into this this generation, let's forget about that past, and yet there's such a wealth of information that we can gain from them. True, and, and you really cannot understand current immigration law or policy unless you understand it through the the prism, if if you will, of a pretty long-term historical perspective. 
Um, that's the only way to really understand it. And that is what you give us in this really incredible work, U.S. immigration policy, is that you divide this up, which is really fascinating, into these six eras, if you will, of how immigration started back in the 1800s. So maybe you would touch on each of those for us, if you could. Sure. Um, Since immigration policy or law is primarily a gatekeeping function, who's going to be allowed in? or not, that suggested to me the metaphor or image of the door. Uh, And so I sort of break down, if you're trying to cover 200 years of history, it's very useful to break it down into segments of 40 years or so. Um, uh, It's just easier for people to kind of grasp them in that context. And then the, the policy influenced the waves of immigration, uh, the composition of it, how many people were coming, where they were coming from. And so that suggested to me these various door eras. And so the, the first era I, I discussed is 1820 to 1880, and I call that the door, the open door area, big era, because virtually anybody could come. There was almost no restrictions in the law. And then it moved into what I, from 1880 to... 1920, uh, a period I called the door ajar era. So the door is still open, but it's beginning to close. They're passing more and more restrictions. Then it goes from uh, 1920 to the 1950s, um, what I call the uh, pet door era. And like a little pet door in the bottom of a door for the dog to get in and out of, in essence, immigration was largely blocked off except to a few, quote, pet countries that where the people were still allowed in. Um, so like Western Europe, uh, Northern Europe and, and Great British Isles had high quotas and the rest of the world very, you know, very few quotas. Uh, then we went go into what I call the the Dutch door era. Uh, I don't know how many people are familiar with a Dutch door, but it's a door that's kind of broken in half. The upper half can swing out. You often see it in restaurants. The upper door is is uh, can swing in out, and the lower part of the door can be closed. And that's that's what was going on during this Dutch door era, where we allowed more immigrants than. The pet door let in, <laughs> pet door era let in, but it was still restricted and still favoring groups like the Hungarian freedom fighters, for instance, who who were allowed in in larger numbers. Um, then we go into what I call the revolving door era, and that would be when particularly illegal immigration was becomes an issue, and you had a lot of immigrants who are coming in and leaving and coming back in and leaving, etc. So it's sort of like a revolving door. And then the final era is the storm door era, and that's from the year 2001 on. And probably would not have happened except, I mean, we would have continued with the the revolving door era probably, but the attacks of uh, 9-11, uh, 2001, uh, caused a big shift in immigration policy, and it became much more restrictive again, and I call that the storm door era. So each era kind of tries to capture in an image what's happening with the flow of immigration. And what we will discover is that there 
there were things that were going on in the country and in the world, as you just uh, mentioned with the Storm Door era, why that changed. But that was true in, in terms of all of the other eras. Uh, and, and was it then tied politically or was it more the ec- economy, which, of course, could be political as well? How did that work? Yeah, well, I, I say there are, or I analyze there are basically four elements involved in immigration policy at all times. Uh, and it's just the relative weight politically given to one or several of those four elements. And the four elements are the economy, the need of the economy, uh, a racial kind of element, uh, often a fear of, a, of an outside group, um, a uh, uh, sense of national identity, um, and what's my fourth one? <laughs> um, well, foreign policy and uh, the interests or needs of foreign policy. So those elements are always involved, um, and sometimes they reinforce one another, and then you get bigger waves of immigration. And sometimes the one element is. Uh, stress so much that the others are much less involved and you usually have a decline. So if we have a recession or a depression or we're in war, in a period of war, then immigration drops off dramatically. Um, and there's much you know, calls for restrictions politically in Congress to, to restrict immigration. Now, tied into this, of course, uh, is uh, the factor of refugees, and which is separate from immigration, and yet it, of course, is adding th- that whole group of people needing to escape their country because of the conditions there. Yes, and, and refugee policy um, is part of immigration policy, if you will, because when we let country, we let persons in as refugees, uh, they later can become um, resident uh, uh, aliens and and ultimately uh, become citizens. So the United States has been the uh, traditionally the uh, largest uh, recipient of refugees, uh, accepting the greatest number of refugees uh, of any country in the world. Although a number of other ones, uh, other countries, Canada, Australia. Um, Israel, for instance, have, have accepted refugees, and as a percent of their total population, often larger numbers than, than has the United States. Not total numbers, because the United States population is so much bigger, but as a percent of the countries, uh, receiving countries' uh, population, there, there's other countries that uh, rival or even get, accept more than the United States. But overall, the United States is still a big receiver of refugees, except now on this this current refugee crisis with President Trump's uh, political agenda and policy agenda. We are accepting less refugees, um, and he's dramatically cut the number from even what's in the law. And so currently, where are we really with DACA? And what, you know, the whole situation going on uh, okay. with the young people. Yeah, in case you re- your listeners are not aware, DACA, D-A-C-A, is an acronym meaning Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals. 
they often refer to those people as dreamers. Uh, they're young. Uh, they're persons uh, who had brought o- were brought over as young children by their parents, so they had no choice in the, in the matter of where they were coming, and they were brought here uh, in illegal or unauthorized uh, status. Um, and now, with, what do we do with them? So, um, the Obama administration tried to get a, a law called the Dreamer Act. Uh, passed through Congress and couldn't, and just there was just a stalemate within Congress, largely between the Republican and Democratic parties members. Uh, and so he finally, in frustration, just passed an executive order, which is called DACA. And what it refers to is simply saying those who come in under certain conditions, their children, and they've were brought in as children and and satisfy some other conditions, um, we will not uh, attempt, the government will not attempt to deport them. So it's deferring that. It's by executive order uh, of the president. And that's still on board. Uh, Trump administration has uh, issued executive orders rescinding Obama's President Obama's order, but the the courts have uh, so far federal uh, district and appellate courts. Uh, there's been three or four cases um, have uh, overturned or put on hold the uh, Trump administration's attempt to rescind DACA. So technically, DACA is still there, still legal, and not being enforced. That is. Uh, they're not deporting those uh, persons who came here uh, as dreamers uh, for some years, but it's up in the air, and, and it's possible. It's possible, I suppose, that if a case gets to the Supreme Court, given the new makeup of the Supreme Court, that they would, in fact, uh, uphold uh, President Trump's executive order to get rid of DACA. Get rid of DACA, which w- would that mean? Therefore, that all the these children now, young adults, need to be deported. Well, certainly not only need to be, but would be the, the government could legally deport them. Right now, it's on hold, and they they cannot enforce it. <clears throat> um, yes, that's what it means. And there are approximately various estimates, but I think the best uh, um, estimate, that at least the ones I trust the most, is by an organization called Pew Research Center. That's P-E-W, Pew Research Center. And their estimates of the number of unauthorized immigrants in the United States is about 10 to 10.5 million. Of those, about a million, um, some say 800,000, goes as much as other estimates to a a million and a quarter, but our dreamers are persons who were brought over uh, as children and who would otherwise qualify uh, for that uh, DACA order to be able to be legally staying in the United States. Um, so, it, you know, if Trump gets his way, if the courts concur that it's perfectly constitutional for him to rescind the, the Obama executive order with one of his own, uh, then they are all subject to uh, deportation. And and you were saying that at 
this could go to the Supreme Court. Does the Supreme Court usually get involved with immigration matters? Oh, you know, yes, it has. Uh, when when challenged in a, in a legal court case that comes up through the courts, and uh, well, for instance, it it did recently uh, um, uh, in uh, June. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court, well, at the end of the last term, the U.S. Supreme Court um, ruled on the uh, travel ban, the Trump administration's travel ban. Your readers would probably think of it as the Muslim travel ban, which is uh, from his original talking about the issue. Uh, he referred to it as a Muslim travel ban. In order to get it through the courts, he, he had to revise it. He had three different executive orders imposing it. The first two were overturned in district court or appellate court. And then the third version of it went through those courts and then on up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled in, in favor of the travel ban, saying it was constitutional with that third version. Essentially what they did, they added two other countries, North Korea and Venezuela, who didn't, don't really send immigrants in any event, but added them to the list so it wasn't just all Muslim-dominant countries that were being banned. And then that way it, it passed muster, and the Supreme Court ruled and, that it was okay. And what about the role of Congress in immigration policy then? Now, it goes to Congress. Do they really factor in and initiate these changes? Very much so. Uh, in fact, over the vast bulk of American history, uh, and even now legally, Congress is the authority on passing the law. And only Congress can pass laws. The executive branch, the president, implements the laws that Congress passed. And politically and traditionally and historically, um, Congress was very involved and initiated the, the acts, the versions of the acts. And the particular administration was seldom um, the source of the idea for the immigration law. It was Congress itself. But foreign policy considerations and changing demographics and the like have made the executive branch uh, and the president in particular, uh, more involved in the policy. But it still depends completely on Congress. I mean, you can have executive orders, as DACA does, or those travel bans by by President Trump, but they, they're not a fixed law. An executive order lasts only while that president is in office, and afterwards another president can, can overturn it or make it go away. Uh, where, whereas if it was written into law by Congress, and then a president just can't get rid of it easily. You have to have Congress repeal it or pass a new law or amend the law. So Congress has been very, very involved throughout history. And right now, in this, what you term this latest era, the Storm Door era, uh, it's a shortened or shorter time although 20 two decades is still a significant amount of time. Do you see that this is going to change, or, or will it intensify? I think it'll intensify, and certainly it's likely to last another, uh, I would guess, probably a decade, uh, so which would get it to about 30 years, uh, 2001 to, let's say, 2030 or thereabouts. Um, 
which is typical of the uh, previous eras. Uh, that's because right now Congress is very stalemated on immigration. You have Republicans who are adamantly uh, opposed to any immigration change, comprehensive immigration particularly, uh, that would grant what they call amnesty to persons here in unauthorized status or illegals. Um, and the Democrats are adamant, adamant that any law being passed would be comprehensive and would include the Dreamer children and include some form of earned legalization. They refer to it instead of amnesty. They refer to it as earned legalization. And that would eventually allow those persons to become citizens. Um, and as long as you have that total stalemate between the two parties, you're not going to get immigration law being passed, and at least not any significant immigration law. Uh, and you would likely have continued um, executive orders of one kind or another to deal with the most pressing aspects of the current situation or problems, because we can't get a comprehensive approach to it through Congress. Do you see, because of all of the the study, uh, and that that they're, they'll come to some kind of a good solution, a bipartisan way of working together? Uh, if there were the will for uh, compromise among uh, enough of the uh, members of Congress to to sort of cross party lines, uh, or you know, go for a, a compromise position. Yes, there is proposals in the law. One even passed uh, in 2013. It passed the Senate, but didn't in the House. Uh, the Speaker of the House would not even bring it to the floor for for debate or consideration. But uh, that's a comprehensive immigration act. Uh, McCain, uh, former, the late Senator John McCain, was one of the co-authors of that particular uh, proposal that passed the Senate. And that's base, it has the basic structure uh, in how it changes the, the current law that would be necessary to uh, get a comprehensive bill in, uh, passed into law. Uh, but I don't see that happening, certainly not uh, probably before 2020. Uh, if the Democrats take back the House in the midterms here in 2018, and then if, and these are very big ifs, but, and then if they, they uh, win the Senate, win back the Senate and or the White House in uh, 2020, then I think you can have immigration reform, uh, comprehensive immigration reform. Um, but short of that kind of change in our basic politics and structure, uh, I think it's an issue that's very stalemated right now, and it's I call it a policy conundrum. Uh, so the kind of law that would be more effective in terms of its policy on input or effect is uh, very is politically unpopular or unlikely to pass. And the, the kind of popular political solutions like build a wall. <laughs> um, could could conceivably get passed in Congress, but they do little to to stop or to end the problem. They don't really solve the issue. So from your educated 
perspective because you are Professor LeMay and you <laughs> really dedicated your life to this study. Would you, what would you see as a really good immigration reform? Well, I do think a comprehensive approach such as that McCain bill that I mentioned is probably the only way to go. Uh, you would have um, strengthening of border controls, not necessarily building a wall. I, I, I don't oppose it. I mean, I don't say, oh, it's, we should not do it, although I think it's largely unnecessary or a waste of money. There's, there's other ways you could have border control than building a physical wall, and that could be having... Uh, increased security through electronic devices, et cetera. Um, but in having increased border security, having increase in border patrol and, and the ability from them to, uh, for that Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security, to enforce stronger measures of border control, but then also have uh, an increase uh, or a means for um, legalization of the 10 million or so immigrants who are in the country right now in unauthorized status. And then finally, I think you would need some change in the preference system. Uh, right now, it's very heavily tipped to uh, family reunification, what the Trump uh, administration calls chain migration. And he wants to move it away from chain migration. Well, at least reduce the amount of chain migration and increase the, the number of immigrant uh, preferences for economic or job-related, occupation-related uh, immigrants. <clears throat> and I think something along that line is necessary. There's a provision in the current law called the lottery provision that, again, the Republicans are adamant to we get rid of. And that probably could go. I mean, we've just get rid of the lottery provision and and have those numbers picked up under other preferences rather than the lottery approach. Um, but I think if you include those factors, uh, you could get it through Congress. You'd get a majority of members of Congress uh, to pass that law. But right now, the, the politics are such that uh, neither side is w willing to uh, compromise in a major way to get it actually passed. And there's just so much to know and understand so that we can feel even halfway competent about having conversations about this. And that's where I feel that with providing us this book, Michael LeMay, The U.S. Immigration Policy, Ethnicity, and religion in American history is a way for us to really uh, become informed. And you write this really in such a, I'm going to call it a user-friendly way, so it doesn't feel so heavy that I can't decipher what's going on. It, it really is storytelling. Well, thank you. That's very, very kind of you to, to say. And that's what I was certainly attempting to do when I set out to write this particular book. And uh, it's about my, I think I've got 12 books altogether that deal with immigration that have been published. But um, as I said, it's a, a subject matter near and dear to my heart, and one I just keep going back to because I always find there's more things I can talk about in the book. Um, and so to get our own copy, you have a, a very simple suggestion for us. Yeah, that is to just go to Amazon.com 
and on the search line put in Michael C. LeMay or the title of the book if they can remember the exact title. Either way, it'll get it to pop up and uh, it pops up and you can order it right through Amazon.com. You can get it uh, from the publisher as well, of course, uh, uh, which is a a, a publisher called Prager Press. But it'd be easier for most uh, people. And there there are uh, quite a number of libraries, university uh, and college libraries and some public libraries as well that uh, have ordered the book and so it, you know they re, uh, listeners might want to check their local library see if it's there but uh, and if not ask the the local library to to uh, acquire it but other if they want to get it their own copy the easiest way is amazon.com that is excellent. And LeMay is just as it sounds, L-E-M-A-Y, although it's a capital M as well. Yeah, that's French-Canadian. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking so with the L-E. Right. A, a tip of the hat to your <laughs> French-Canadian grandparents. Thank you. <laughs> so this has been most fascinating, so vitally important to our life, our our daily lives here. And in some areas, we may feel it more so than others. But really, as a country, it affects all of us uh, as a world population. It does as well. So we owe it to ourselves to become educated and Professor Michael LeMay. I feel that you have given us a, a really uh, intriguing lecture, if you will, this morning. Thank you. And it was a pleasure to be on your program. And likewise, a pleasure to have you.